calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Welcome everyone to another comps segment. You might notice that it's Cece here, not Bianca. Bianca's on a fabulous vacation and so I get to chat with Emily Summer from East City Bookshops in DC. If you're in the DC area, please stop by, take a picture with your favorite book in store and tag us on social media. And no matter where you are in the world, just head to eastcitybookshops.com and you can place an order there so you get to support indie bookshops no matter where you are. Actually, my mother-in-law is in D.C., so I'm going to message her right now and make her send me a picture in store. So, Emily, welcome. And if you see a very tiny, petite woman making a beeline for Bianca's book because she is obsessed with the Witches of Moonshine Manor, that's Anna, my wonderful mother-in-law. Well, thank you so much for sending her our way. And please tell her to ask for me. I would love to say hello. Will do. This is going to be fun. We're going to make a whole social media thing out of it. I want everyone posting pictures at East City Bookshop, please, if you're in the D.C. area. I wonder if we have followers in the D.C. area. I hope so. We have had customers who come in because of the podcast. So thank you for the shout outs and the support for those of you who have come by. Absolutely. Listen, it's selfish. We want independent bookstores because they actually pay authors, right? Like sales at independent bookshops actually mean something to authors and it's not heavily discounted like some other places, I'll say. I won't name the bad store, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. Let's kick this off with our very first comp question. Hello, and thank you guys so much on the podcast for everything that you do. I listen to this podcast religiously. My name is Bree, and I'm looking for comp titles for my science fiction fantasy novel, Intertwining Love, Magic, and Self-Discovery. My main character is a complex and flawed woman who is haunted by her past and covers the secrets behind a magical drug that is corrupting her world. After the death of her brother, she is forced into a position of power back in a home she spent years escaping. It doesn't make it better that there is a conspiracy brewing around her brother's death and her past has literally come back to haunt her. She has no idea where to start with each problem. But when she finds out there is a war brewing that she will have to be a part of, she has to figure out how to get ahead of it and save both of her world from destruction. So the tones are serious, suspenseful, and like a conspiratorial vibe. The genre is science fiction fantasy in a technologically further environment. For comps, I used sci-fi vibes and conspiracy of a family member's death from The Blood Trials by Annie Davenport. The Mystery, Revelation, and Sibling Bond from Full Metal Alchemist. I was wondering if you guys had any more comps that I could use. Thank you so much. So hello to Bree. Thank you so much for calling in and telling us about your sci-fi fantasy that intertwines love and magic and self-discovery. I'm particularly intrigued by the fact that there's this magical drug that is corrupting this world. I, I love to read contemporary literary fiction about the opioid crisis and how drugs are affecting our lives here. So I love the, the idea of taking that and putting it into a sci-fi fantasy book. I admit I did not know either of the comps that were mentioned in your voicemail, Full Metal Alchemist or The Blood Trials, but I looked both up 
And based on your description and based on those books, my first suggestion is The Memory Librarian, which is by Janelle Monet. Yes, that Janelle Monet. They are just that fabulous. It, it talks about tech and all of the same suspenseful aspects that you mentioned in your call. There's some love. There is certainly self-discovery. I think The Memory Librarian sounds like an excellent comp. I also would suggest looking at one of our top sellers at East City Bookshop, which is an like it's it's not brand new, but it continues to be one of our best sellers. And that's This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Matar and Max Gladstone. And again, this this deals with the grand themes of love and war, but it's very much a sci-fi book and doesn't skew fantasy, it skews sci-fi. And I think that together those those could possibly be additional comps for your work in progress. Excellent, Emily. Thank you so much. All right, next question. Hi, comps please for my domestic suspense thriller. Kate Jennings has been hiding secrets for 18 years. Her search for resolution brought her to Cheshire, but here she has met and fallen in love with Richard. A phone call on her old Nokia suddenly brings the past into focus. Olivier wants to meet up. And while Kate needs to see him to help resolve her past trauma, will Richard forgive her when she cannot forgive herself? Through dual timeline and flashbacks, we discover the events that led to life-changing choices she made in 2001. Meanwhile, Richard's boss is found dead and we discover the real reason that Kate came to Cheshire, although now she has other secrets she must keep. Inspired by thriller writers Erin Kelly and Claire McIntosh, the past is revealed through the novel A Little Like Sophie's Choice. Thanks for your help. Okay, so if you've listened to any of our other comp segments, you'll know that domestic suspense is one of my personal favorite genres. So anytime you're talking about hidden secrets and past trauma, and we've got to figure out what happened back in 2001 to lead us to today, I am here for it. I love that this caller mentioned that the book was inspired by Claire McIntosh and Aaron Kelly. I think that's an excellent way of giving sort of the tone and comps without it having to be like a direct plot to plot comp. And in the spirit of Claire McIntosh and Aaron Kelly, I also want to mention two others that I think would work really nicely. Alice Feeney. I find that we have a lot of Aaron Kelly and Alice Feeney overlap in our customers who read in this area. Same with Amy Malloy. I think Amy Malloy writes really excellent domestic suspense and appeals to the same customers. And finally, there is an author that I just discovered this summer. She had the number one book in Ireland while I was there for weeks and weeks and weeks called No One Saw a Thing. She has at least one, if not two books out in the US, but I expect that she's taken off so completely that we'll see her more over here. But No One Saw a Thing is excellent domestic suspense about a missing child. There are lots of flashbacks and several different perspectives, which I think could make it a good comp for this one. Amazing, Emily. Thank you so much. All right, moving on to our next question. Hi, and thank you for this podcast and for your webinars and everything you do to help inform and inspire writers throughout their journey. I am looking for comps for my adult sci-fi noir novel, in which a private eye gets more than he bargained for when he discovers a human android double murder while on his latest case. As other murders occur and tensions between the two species continue to rise, he must enlist the help of his android ex-lover to navigate murky city politics and find the killer. Comps as I was writing were the prodigal son TV show for an affluent MC 
with a Tragic Past, Machines Like Me by Ewan McEwan for questions about human-android relationships, and of course, Blade Runner, which I think might be too old and too big to compare a debut novel to. Any sort of direction or comps would be super helpful and appreciated. Thank you for everything that you do. So I told Cece before we started recording that sci-fi and fantasy are my hardest genres because I depend on what I buy for the store, what sells in our store, and what my coworkers tell me they read because that is not where I read the most. That said, if I were going to read in that area, I think A Private Eye Discovering an Android Human Murder, that that adult sci-fi noir might be where I would start. Again, I love the comps that are mentioned in the call and thinking about maybe some more recent comps that would work for machines like me and Blade Runner. I would suggest Martha Wells, whose Murderbot Diary series begins with All Systems Red. And as the Murderbot name suggests, this is one that's going to deal with interspecies drama. And the same, I think, can be said for Becky Chambers, whose Monk and Robot series is a duology. It's a psalm for the wild built and a prayer for the crown shy. I would take a look at both Martha and Becky and see if those series or any of their other works feels right. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay, next question coming up. Hi, everyone. I'm looking for comps for my book, which is a travel memoir set in 1989. It's about a Canadian-born narrator who becomes so smitten with a new rock band called U2 that she goes on a solo trip to Bonald's homeland. It's also her parents' homeland, but they're Irish Protestants from the north. When she discovers her clan is on the wrong side of a civil rights uprising, she's determined to experience the troubles firsthand. Why exactly are people loving Molotov cocktails? Along the way, it wouldn't hurt if she learned to be a proper young person and enjoy a glass of Guinness. She can only afford a short trip to bear witness, but she accidentally visits during the two most dangerous weeks of the year. With escalating cultural mishaps, she ends up in a street riot and must come to terms with her parents' complicated homeland or else forever carry an inherited shame. Thanks, everyone. Okay, I love, um, you got me with you 2 in Ireland. I'm, I am here, I'm in it for this travel memoir. And I was when I was thinking of comps for this, I cannot think of a particular memoir that feels exactly right. However, I think that there's plenty of nonfiction, general nonfiction, and very popular literary fiction that could work together. So I'm going to, this is basically my short Ireland slash Northern Ireland slash Troubles reading list. Um, for background and or if any of it might work. So first, the most obvious one is Say Nothing by Patrick Radden Keefe, which is not a comp because Patrick Radden Keefe's Say Nothing is serious journalism about the disappearance of one woman in Northern Ireland during the height of the Troubles. And he uses that particular true crime incident to, to look at the whole Troubles and the IRA, the development of the IRA up till the present day. But I find that a lot of people, particularly people who read mostly fiction or mostly memoir, it's still new to them. It is outstanding. So even if it's not a comp, I think you can say for readers of Say Nothing, of which there are many 
out there. I am such a fan. I also loved Trespasses by Louise Kennedy, which is a beautiful literary fiction novel from last year that takes place in, I think, like the late 70s, early 80s in Northern Ireland. An excellent look at that Protestant-Catholic divide for something that that skews more dairy girls in tone, meaning a little bit lighter and funnier, but still set with the troubles at their heart is Big Girl, Small Town by Michelle Gallen. She also has a second novel out called Factory Girls. And then people might remember the Booker winning Milkman by Anna Burns. So those are my Irish suggestions that might be, if not direct comps, at least for the same readers of this memoir. Be still my TBR as I listen to all of these recommendations. Okay, next question. Hi, I'm hoping to get comps for my upmarket women's fiction manuscript. I call it a menopausal coming-of-age story. Whitney is a 46-year-old music scout wrestling with her identity as she navigates menopause symptoms and her deep desire to reignite her personal mojo. It's female-centered and offers a contemplative, at times humorous, look at the complexities of middle age, long-term love, sex, and the nuance of the often taboo topic of menopause. She pushes the boundaries of her marriage by sexting with a young artist, runs off to hippie retreats, and gets new piercings. We are on Whitney's journey. The target demographic is women ages 40 to 70, and there are definitely some moral dilemmas that make the book ripe for book club conversations. While there is humor, there are also passages that swerve towards literary fiction. It's also on the shorter side at 60,000 words, so I'm hoping to find at least one comp that sits in the 250-page range. Thank you for any ideas. All right. For our upmarket menopausal coming of age, I have to say I have the best comp for this book, and I cannot mention it because it is a book that hasn't been announced yet. But I, I bet by the time we record next month, I will be able to hearken back and say, remember that menopausal coming of age that we were waiting on a comp for? I bet I can say it by then. But there is a book coming out in the spring. It's a novel. It is, it's not a debut. The author has not announced it yet, but it is the funniest, most over-the-top, hilarious, menopause, middle-aged novel that I have read in ages and ages and ages. And I, if I, if I could say what it is, I would, but I, I can't because the publisher will kill me. But I got a chance to read an early copy and I can't wait to tell you about it. And I'm certain that there is a market for more than one. So the ones that I can mention for now, for a particularly for a shorter book, which we're looking for here, we want something sort of taught in that 250 page range. I would look at the great Jenny Offal, Julie Schumacher, and Julie Atsuka and see if any of those have the right tone. Those are all literary fiction, but Julie Schumacher and Jenny Offal are also like very, just very funny. I am in awe at all three women's ability to make a very short book extremely powerful. So look at Jenny Offal, Julie Schumacher, and Julie Atsuka for that very short but very sweet spot. Last month, I mentioned the new book, Amazing Grace Adams. And I think that's one that we should look at here too, just because that's sort of a middle-aged woman reaching her breaking point and deciding like, what am I going to do next? Where am I going to go from here? And then I will also shout out a book that is now out in paperback, which is Vladimir by Julia May Jonas and is just the smartest and most pleasurable book about a long marriage, 
our aging bodies, middle-aged desire and obsession, and it's just outstanding. So Vladimir by Julia May Jonas as well. Color me curious about the book you can't mention, and now I really want to know. So everyone, I'm holding Emily hostage after this, after we stop recording, and I'm making her tell me. Actually, I'm going to hold her hostage. I'm going to do it. Okay. It's really, really good. And I anticipate the publisher will announce it any day. And it's just, it's, it's wonderful. Oh my gosh. I'm so curious. Okay. Waiting for these announcements. It, it's, it's the best, but also the worst. Next question. I'm seeking comps for my third person dual POV historical romance set in 1837 Toronto. It's about a widowed lawyer, James, who sends his lonely daughter to school, having no idea she'll end up taking her lessons with Sarah, a laundress hiding from her past in a life of drudgery. James forbids their unlikely friendship, but he hasn't reckoned on the upheaval that threatens, for Toronto in 1837 is seething with rebellion and disease. When Evie falls ill, James must join forces with the woman he once scorned. Gossip threatens, but James steps in with an offer of marriage she can't refuse. Soon the forces of rebellion around them shatter their uneasy truce. James is captured, and Sarah must find the courage to face her past or see her husband hang for treason. This is a closed-door romance similar in tone to Mimi Matthews, more hallmark than Bridgerton. Tropes are secret identity and class divides with a dash of marriage of convenience. I'd love any suggestions set in North America as most are in England. Thanks so much. Okay. So I love that we are specifically looking for a historical romance that is North American because you are absolutely right. Everything that I thought of was even those that weren't written by English authors or British authors, they're set, they're set in England. So you mentioned Mimi Matthews. I immediately thought about Virginia Heath, who is a favorite in our store. Those are also England, but I think that the tone and themes would work. So if you don't know Virginia Heath, check out Virginia Heath. And then we in DC, I mean everywhere, but especially in DC because she lives in our area, love Sarah McLean. But Sarah McLean's, I think most of hers, if not all of hers, are also said in England. So this is one where I have a couple of ideas, but they don't exactly answer the posited question. However, I know that romance readers know everything there is to know about romance. So I am certain that there are some listeners who can chime in with some American or Canadian suggestions here for our dual POV 1837 Toronto historical romance. So maybe when this goes up. When this one goes up, people can hear it and then they can respond on Instagram and help out our caller with some more on point suggestions. But in the meantime, look at Virginia Heath because I do think that one works. Ooh, amazing. Okay. So if you can think of suggestions once this episode comes out, please find our post on Instagram about this episode and tag me and tag Emily because now we both want to read more books about this. So please do us a favor and help us out. Help a gal out. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Next question. Hi, my name is Hallie, and I am looking for comp titles for my contemporary middle grade called Twelfth Curtain Call. It is a very loose retelling of Twelfth Night with some parent trap elements set at a middle school for the performing arts in New York City. It is told through two perspectives, one of a reluctant uh, auditioner, even though she's been placed on stage by her Broadway famous mother, and an already famous Hollywood actor who wants more serious on-stage roles and seeks out a Shakespeare professor at my performing arts middle school. So I've been using Tim Fetterly's Better Nathan Ever trilogy because it's theater kids, but my book comes in longer, possibly because it's more of a mystery, putting the clues together. It's from these two kids, different perspectives, and it's not like the Swifts, 
So I'm not sure what else to comp it to. And I also want to illustrate it. So there you go. Help. Okay. Hi, Hallie. Thank you so much for calling in. As soon as you said that you had a contemporary middle grade with parent trap elements, I thought of a wonderful book by Holly Goldberg Sloan and Meg Wallitzer, which is called To Night Owl from Dogfish. And it is very much parent trap vibes. It's two kids whose parents have actually fallen in love and then send the kids to camp where they have to get to know each other and be friends. So it doesn't have the theater angle, but it does have this sort of like closed community of like summer camp versus a stage production and definite parent trap elements. And it's just great. My older child loved that book when it came out a couple of years ago. For a more theater specific middle grade suggestion, I would look at Starcrossed by Barbara D. I would have certainly suggested Tim Federley's Better Late Than Never, which you already mentioned. And, and then maybe this is YA, but I would, I would characterize it as like younger YA, maybe too big for you to comp, but Will Grayson, Will Grayson by John Green. And I think David Levithan is the co is the co-author, but it's John Green and a co-author. Will Grayson, Will Grayson is just my favorite. It's my favorite theater kid book of the last good while. So I would look at that too. But I think that tonight Al from Dogfish might work, might tonally work at least. Thank you, Emily. Okay. Off to the next question. Hi there, my name's Monet. I'm looking for comps for my YA LGBT contemporary heist thriller. Colleen is the daughter of a famed conservationist living in a research center in Panama, but when her mom's funding is cut, it means leaving her friends, the girl she loves, and the troop of monkeys her mom studies. When she discovers that corruption is behind the decision, she and her friends need to adventure across rainforest, island, and city in order to steal the evidence and save the center and the monkeys. It's sort of Embassy Row meets High Society, although that's a bit old and I'm not sure the tone is 100% right. I have I Kissed Shara Wheeler for the mystery aspect and for the sapphic romance, which is great. I would love anything YA that relates to conservation, exotic locales, even a sort of take your kid to work day vibe. Love and Olives and 13 Little Blue Envelopes kind of work, but they're not 100% there. They have the family, they have the travel, but not really that action adventure genre. Thank you so much. Okay, so we are young adult LGBTQ heist thriller. You've got so many great comps here. I think I think you're onto something and I think that you've already got all of your answers. I think even if they're all not if they don't all have all of the elements of your book, I think together mentioning, you know, it's got the X of I Kiss Shara Wheeler and the Y of this. I think that that works for me. Of course, I'm not the agent. I was trying to think of a an adventure, exotic locale, conservation story. And the books that I can think of the most are upper middle grade as opposed to young adult. But there's certainly crossover in those two areas. We have a lot of middle grade readers who read up to YA and a lot of young adults who are still reading upper middle grade well into their teens. And those books are Carl Hyacin's books, Hoot and Flush and Chomp. They are set in the Everglades. So they have that exotic locale. They are very much adventure novels with groups of friends who have to solve a problem. Very funny. And they all have some sort of conservation element. So I think Hoot in there, they're trying to save the owls, but it's set in the in South Florida. It is friends on an adventure with a very specific goal. And I think if it doesn't skew too, too young, if the age difference isn't too much of a discrepancy, that's one that I would suggest. Perfect. Thank you so much. Okay. Moving on to the next question. 
Hi, Bianca and Emily. My name is Audrey, and I'm looking for comps for my dual POV midlife coming-of-age novel set in Barcelona and Budapest that explores the power of female friendships. For comps, I have the novel Half-Blown Rose by Lisa Cross-Smith. Then someone suggested Deborah Levy's memoir, The Cost of Living, but that's not quite right. Angela leaned into her career in Budapest after her divorce. She's offered a promotion, but it's in Barcelona, the scene of the affair that ended her marriage. Once there, the shadow of her ex, a sexist boss, and culture shock threatened to derail her new life. Barcelona native Mariona is reeling from her husband's sudden departure. She continues to care for his father, who berates her constantly for failing to produce children. Quickly becoming fast friends, the two women delve into their pasts in the two cities, uncovering secrets that shatter who they thought they were, but that may hold the key to their futures. Thank you for all the shit about writing. Audrey, you are right on the money because the first thing, as soon as you said a midlife coming of age in Barcelona and Budapest, I immediately thought about Half Blown Rose by Lisa Cross Smith. I think she's just excellent. And that that is a story of a woman going to Paris and finding love and finding herself. So I think you're completely on the right track. And I would absolutely suggest that for a comp that is able to capture the friendship piece of this story, which sounds like a huge part of it. There is a book by Rachel Joyce called Miss Benson's Beetle that I have had great success selling because it is about two older women who are on a trip together and become friends through the trip. So I think that Miss Benson's Beetle could capture the friendship angle here and the importance of friendship and the importance of that connection. And then I love the inclusion of Half-Blown Rose to get the the wonderful setting and sort of the midlife coming of age adventurous spirit in a new spot. Yet another book I now have to read because I'm so curious about it. Okay, moving on to the next one. Good morning, Emily and Bianca. I am seeking comps for my upmarket fiction about a woman who gets into trouble online for getting a little too involved in the lives of young women who remind her of the daughter that she's lost. Because of that, she's agreed to a voluntary ban from all social media. Then her college-age son brings home a new girlfriend, and my main character is convinced that girl has an agenda. But because of her past mistakes, her husband won't listen to her. For tone, think Megan Abbott, especially the turnout, that kind of dark and ominous, very close feel. For comps, I'm looking at Vladimir by Julia May Jonas for its examination of the shifting loyalties of a long marriage and a novel obsession for the way it looks at feminine obsession. Although in that book, that's about a romantic obsession, and this very much is not. I'm also thinking about Apples Never Fall because of the way a young girl disrupts the balance of a very dysfunctional family, but I don't think it serves me to comp to Leon Moriarty. So any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. So I love it when our comps are full of synchronicity in this. So this, in this call, she mentioned Vladimir by Julia May Jonas, which I just suggested. So I'm glad that Vladimir is having a little bit of a moment here. I really love that book. So I urge, even if you're not going to use it as a comp, I urge people to go check it out. It's so unusual and fresh and just unlike anything else that I that I have read recently. For a book that captures the dark and ominous tone of sort of obsession and sneaking and creeping and lurking on people and trying to figure things out and the dark side of social media... I would suggest a novel obsession by Caitlin Barash, which if you remember the the viral article and discussion around like the bad art friend a couple of years ago, if you're interested in that bad art friend discussion, a novel obsession is the book for you. It's it's very commercial and reads very easily, but it's got that undercurrent of like just kind of 
nosing and digging around where you shouldn't, I think that one could work. Likewise, there's a book that either just came out or is about to come out called Search History by Amy Taylor. And it is about a woman who becomes obsessed with her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend who has died through online digging. Neither of those might be quite as dark as the Megan Abbott tone that we're looking for here in this one. So for a comp that captures the real darkness that might be present here, I would look at two novels by Laura Sims. I am a huge, huge Laura Sims fan. Her first book came out maybe in 2019 or 2020. It's called Looker. And it is about a woman who really had it together for quite a while. She was married. She's got a job, just very normal life. And then things start to unravel. She finds she can't have children. Her marriage falls apart. She loses her job. And she starts to to peek into the house of a neighbor down the street on her Brooklyn street who's an actress. And she gets more and more wrapped into this actress's life by spying on her. Laura's most recent book just came out recently, and it's called How Can I Help You? And it is a dark and twisty tale of two librarians, neither of whom are as they seem. And I just, I love Laura. I want everyone to read Laura. And so I think a combination of, of those books could work here. Emily, what are you doing to me? Like you're destroying my any chances of me ever having anything, a TBR that resembles normal. Okay, so I am obsessed with a novel obsession. Obsessed. I love that book. I completely oh, adore it. So I remember talking to the editor and figuring out that she was the editor for that book. And I just fangirled. It was very embarrassing. And since you loved that book and you're recommending all these other books, it means that you have really great taste, which of course we already knew. So now I have to go read the other books too. Okay, so many books. Amazing. Yeah, you got it. Next question. Hi there. My name is Grace, and I'm looking for some help with comps for my sci-fi adventure novel told from two contrasting female perspectives. It takes place 500 years in the future. May and Nadia, my two main characters, are from Mars, and they're on a mission to Earth to save Mars from an energy crisis. When their ship crashes on Earth, they find out Earth is not a dead planet, as they've been led to believe, but is instead full of robots, humans, and even some monsters. My story has a quirky, fast-paced style with lots of plot elements, but it is character-driven and will be accessible to non-traditional sci-fi readers. The comp that's speaking to me the most right now is Born by Jeff Vandermeer. I do have two other comps that I've considered, but I don't think they're well-known enough. One is Goliath by Tochi Onyebuchi, and the other is The Undefeated by Una McCormack. I would really appreciate any recommendations you can give me for comps, and I also want to say thank you so much for your amazing podcast. Okay, Grace, thank you so much for giving us a a spiel about your sci-fi adventure. I love the comps that you've suggested. I think Born by Jeff Vandermeer sounds great. To me as a bookseller, neither Goliath nor The Undefeated seem too small or obscure. I think both of those sound excellent. Goliath is one that I might have mentioned. And I would just say, I maybe add in Kim Stanley Robinson, maybe too big, but the Mars series, which starts with Red Mars, sounds like a sort of reverse of, of this. That is Earth characters going to Mars. It is Mars-based, as you can tell by the series title and the title of the book. But I think what you've got is great so far. So I would I would look at Kim Stanley Robinson and see if that makes sense. But otherwise, I think you are on such a right track. Amazing. Okay, next question. Hi, Bianca and Emily. My name is Meredith, and I'm looking for comp titles for my manuscript. 
It's a work of upmarket women's fiction about a young woman navigating her newly blossoming career and love life as she aspires to leave her mark on 1988 Silicon Valley. I was originally comping Lessons in Chemistry for its themes of female ambition and motherhood centered on a fiercely intelligent protagonist fighting to succeed in a male-dominated field, but I'm now worried the book has gotten too big. My first-person protagonist is also not quirky like Elizabeth Zott. She is more well-rounded, and although she's extremely smart, growing up in a small southern town has left her a bit naive and lacking in big life experiences. Thank you both so much for all that you do for aspiring writers, and I look forward to hearing your suggestions. Hi, Meredith. I'm so glad to hear about a book that takes place in 80s Silicon Valley. That year and setting immediately have me interested. I am also a Southerner, so the idea of this sort of like naive Southern girl in California is personally quite appealing. I I see where you're going with Lessons in Chemistry. I love that book. I think if the character is not as quirky and dynamic as Elizabeth Zott with as big as that book is now, I think your instincts are probably right to skip it. Although I see, like I said, I see where you're going and I I like that. The two books that I would mention are two of my, I mean, really just like favorite, 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 favorites. Ghosts by Dolly Alderton and Writers and Lovers by Lily King. So without knowing the, the career path and career trajectory of our main character in this work, What I love about Ghosts and Writers and Lovers is that both of them are very concerned with career and work, and neither of them have sort of hot mess protagonists. They both have characters who are very vivid, very real, very fully realized, and they're both just really good at their jobs. So in Ghosts by Dolly Alderton, our main character is is young and she's navigating online dating and getting ghosted. That's the title. Her sort of changing friendships as her friends settle down, get married and have kids, her aging parents. And she is, she happens to be a chef who is doing very, very well. And she's dealing with that also. In Writers and Lovers by Lily King, the main character, Casey, is a very driven and talent, we find out, talented novelist who is working as a waitress while she's toiling over this novel that's taking her what feels like years and years and years. But I love that in both books, the career is a focus because the characters are are floundering there. Like they know what they want. They're doing a good job. They're figuring it out. And I, I love that. But there are definitely love plots in both and just these wonderful, marvelous characters that are so well-written. I want everybody to read both of those books. And I hope either or both of them would be a good fit here. Okay. Last question. Here we go. Hi, my name's Fiona, and I'm in Comp Health, so thank you for any help you can offer. My manuscript is a mainstream contemporary adventure romance. The tone is humorous, verging on slapstick in places. My MC, Trinity, is a reclusive entrepreneur who designs sex toys from the blissful privacy of her West Hollywood home. Her brother, Jesse, a software designer living in Ireland, is kidnapped, so Trinity must face her fears of the outside world, fly to Ireland, and deliver a mysterious map as ransom. Aided by an odd assortment of characters, including a dangerously charming sheep former named 
Paul, Trinity ventures through the wild west of Ireland, unable to find the kidnapper's rendezvous point. After a night of fun and ensuing passion, Paul suggests to Trinity that they steal the treasure the map leads to and hand over the map to rescue her brother. Shit hits the fan, all parties become separated, and Trinity is held at gunpoint by a demented British historian who has nothing to do with the kidnapping. I'm embarrassed to say the only comp I can come up with is the 2022 film The Lost City. Help, please. Okay, Fiona, you never, ever have to apologize for comping something to the masterpiece movie, The Lost City. In my household, at least, we are big, big, big Lost City fans. And actually, my husband was in the next room while I was listening to the call coming up with comps. And as soon as you said, the only thing I have is The Lost City, my husband yelled out, that's what I was going to say. So I think think that that's a great comp. It was a great movie. It made a lot of money. I personally loved it. For something that is a book that is, you know, not a Channing Tatum star vehicle, it sounds like maybe some Terry Pratchett might work here. He is so big and the books are old, but sometimes I think that's the best we can do if something is so unique and original, which of course is wonderful. And the book that is more recent and not too big to comp that I will suggest is Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting. It is wild and riotous and hilarious and over the top. There is even a sex toy angle, as you mentioned in your in your pitch. So look at Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting. But really, I think it sounds like you're doing your own thing here. And I, I am totally here for that as well. And that's Thank it you today. so much, Emily. We appreciate this so much. Oftentimes, listeners ask, what can we do to support the podcast? Well, one of the things you can do is support East City Bookshop. Go to their website, eastcitybookshop.com. Place your order there. You're going to buy books anyway. Why not support an indie bookshop who is doing good work and supporting Emily and the podcast too? Because this is how we all grow in life, by supporting each other and our community and not by supporting people who want to colonize other planets. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Cece. Thank you. Thank you. All of it at every order counts for an independent bookstore. So we appreciate the nudge for everybody and everybody who has has done it and has placed orders with us. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky though to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and Francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. 
Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. At each professional crossroad, Nina Simon has made the choice most likely to disappoint her mother. She left an engineering job at NASA to design museum exhibits, dropped a museum directorship to start a global movement for more inclusive cultural organizations, and now has tossed that aside to write crime fiction. Nina's debut, Mother Daughter Murder Night, is the September Reese's Book Club pick. Thankfully, her mother approves. Yay! Nina, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is such an honor. I have been a fan for so many years and just so grateful to be here with you. Thank you so much for that. We are so honored to have you. Nina, there is so much I want to discuss today because we have so many listeners who want to be in your position. You have had a dream debut. You've had the kind of debut that most writers can only dream about. So can you take us through that from when you got this story idea or even maybe before that? Was this like your first novel you wrote or your third novel? Take us through the whole thing because I'm just fascinated. Yeah, well, and it absolutely is a dream now, but I have to admit that it started really as a nightmare. I had never written a novel, had always been a reader, and had written some nonfiction and some poetry, but never had writing a novel gone onto my radar. And then about three years ago, I got a phone call that terrified me. My mom um, had been diagnosed with stage four cancer. It was in her brain. It was in her lungs. It was in her bones. And I 
upended my life to be with her and quit my job, you know, moved in with my mom and felt very grateful and lucky that we got to be together. But it was really a hard and stressful and very scary time for us. And my mom and I have both always loved murder mysteries. And so one day I just turned to her and I said, you know, we need something else to talk about besides cancer here. What if I tried writing a murder mystery? And what if I made the detective somebody like you? And that's really where Mother Daughter Murder Night was born. And so, you know, Bianca, I never imagined that we would be here today, you know, with this physical book, talking to you, any of this. What I imagined at that time was I was looking for something, a distraction, an escape, a source of comfort, a source of joy, maybe, even though that seemed impossible at that time for us. And really writing this story became that. So in the mornings, you know, my mom would sleep and I would sit on her bed next to her and I would just write these scenes. And all I was thinking was, can I write these scenes that could make my mom smile? And then when she would wake up, I'd sort of slide the laptop over to her. I'd go make her breakfast and then I'd come back and hopefully she'd eat, you know, depended. <laughs> but but then we talk about what I'd written and we went back and forth like that for months. And the book and this story really became for us a source of joy um, and a source of hope during a very hard time. You know, fast forward and my mom started getting better. And I decided I was loving writing, that I didn't, I wasn't ready to take a full-time job again because I was nervous that if my mom got really sick again, I wouldn't want to have to make that choice. I wanted to be able to focus on her. And so I said, okay, I'm loving this. I'm learning so much. I'm, you know, reading craft books and self-editing and working with beta readers and listening to the shit no one tells you about writing. And I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. And I will say that there was a very deliberate choice. And I really think about there was this intimate, beautiful project I did with my mom. And then there was the decision and the embarking on a path to publish this thing that became Mother Daughter Murder Night. And those are two separate beautiful projects in my mind. And I would have been happy to just do the first. And I would have still been proud and felt like it had done something very meaningful for me and for my mom. And I feel very lucky and that I'm loving and exploring the second. But it wasn't a foregone conclusion that I was writing to publish or anything like that. So I guess it was, yeah, just about two years ago now that I went onto the publishing journey. And yes, sheepishly, I feel like I did have this Cinderella experience where I started querying. I was cold querying. And I learned a lot from this podcast about doing that. And within about two months, I had a great agent, Stephanie Lieberman, who's assisted by Molly Steinblatt and Adam Hobbins. And Stephanie and Molly and Adam really gave me a crash course in improving the novel as I'd written it. We worked together through three drafts over eight months. Then July of last year, Stephanie put the book on submission. We sold it in 10 days in a preempt. There was a lot of interest. I actually had COVID during the submission week. I, I thought, oh, it's going on submission. I'm leaving for a remote cabin for a month. This is great. I'll put it out of my mind. Submission takes a long time. And then I'm on the plane to the cabin, you know, the day after we've gone on sub and Stephanie calls me and says, somebody at a big five read it overnight and wants to preempt. I mean, it was just bananas. And then I got to this cabin where there's like no reception and, and I got COVID. And so I would wake up in the morning and I was on West Coast time and, you know, New York publishing's three hours later. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd like look at my phone and there'd be a text from my agent that said, okay, you're talking to so-and-so, this editor at 8 a.m. and this editor at 9 a.m. I would just take a ton of DayQuil. I'd 
do these calls, take a lot of notes, and then I just go back to sleep. And thank goodness I was taking notes because I had no memory of these phone calls afterwards. And it was then on July 14th, the day before my birthday, that we sold the book. And unbelievably, we sold it for an amount that really enables me to keep writing and caring for my parents and my family. And that's just the greatest gift. And then wildly enough, it was exactly a year later, July 14th of this year, that we got the call about Reese. And it was again the day before my birthday. And I now feel that all my birthdays are ruined because next year I'm going to be expecting a unicorn um, to come over, a, you know, a rainbow. Um, but it's really been a, a blessed journey. But I will say like what matters most to me is that my mom is alive. She's doing pretty well. We did the launch together and I feel like I feel so overjoyed to get to share our story and the story of this book. But if all I had was a deeper relationship with a mom who's fairly healthy, you know, that's what's most important to me about this whole story. There is so much to love there. And there's a lot to unpack. One, firstly, I think it's incredible that this is the second Reese's Book Club book that I know of that started off as a daughter with a mom who was really sick and who was writing the book kind of as a distraction and to find some beauty in the world and to share it with her mother because that was true of Marissa Stapley and Lucky as well. That's how Lucky came about also when Marissa's mom was was really ill and, you know, she was in hospital and, and wanting to just have some kind of distraction. So that to me is incredible. And I love how a project can begin something that is just a distraction, a labor of love, something fun, not you busy desperately trying to write to the market and then it still ends up being hugely successful because the question we get a lot when we do our deep dive workshop series and whenever we, we do a webinar is people saying how can we write to the market how do we know what publishers are going to want and you don't know because by the time these books are coming out the whole trend has passed anyway although I think the cozy murder mystery is something that you know is still very popular and will be popular for a while. What's your take on that? Yeah, I would say actually I got very lucky in meeting a trend because even when my agent signed me, she said, you know, this might be a very difficult book to sell. Maybe I'll just give you the one-liner, which is Mother Daughter Murder Night is this big-hearted mystery. It's both a family drama and a cozy murder about a grandma, a single mom, and a teenage girl who work together to solve the murder of a naturalist who washes up on their doorstep in coastal California. And when my agent first signed me, she said, you know, this book is really in two lanes. It's in the family drama lane, and it's also in the traditional murder mystery lane. And books that are between two lanes sometimes get lost. And then, yes, we are so lucky that The Maid, The Thursday Murder Club, Finley Donovan, Vera Wong, and Dial A for Aunties, that there started to be this sort of micro trend around these lighthearted, warm hearted murder mysteries. And actually, Bianca, I remember hearing Nita Prose on this podcast talk about The Maid. I hadn't yet read the book, but when I heard her describe it, I thought, oh my goodness, this is the kind of book that Mother Daughter Murder Night is. And maybe this means we're not going to get lost. I'll also say that when we ended up going with William Morrow, one of the reasons we did is that the wonderful editor, Liz Stein, who I'm working with, is somebody who did not want to edit it into one of those lanes or the other, but who really wanted to continue to embrace that hybridity. And I think that, you know, it's another thing that can be frustrating. I mean, I see it now that we're often encouraged to write in a lane and to write in a genre and to a market that's knowable. But of course, some of the books that get a lot of attention break some of those 
those rules a little bit. And I think that in our case, we got lucky. You know, another year, this book could have been lost. And that doesn't make it any less of good of a book either. You know, I would say to everybody who's writing books that aren't finding their place at the given moment. Yeah. And I love that your editor said, you know, I'm not going to try and make it one or the other, because I think a lot of editors would have tried to do that. And I think that when you have these breakout successes, you know, the kind of Reese's Book Club books, it's because they appeal to such a wide audience. It's not just one demographic. I mean, the thing that I love about the Thursday Murder Club is every single person I've recommended that series to has loved it. And it doesn't matter their age, their gender, you know, whether they're gay or straight, man, woman, they have all loved it. And, you know, so it shows that there are books out there that can appeal to a mass audience. And there are ways to market them because we get told that it makes it so much harder to market. And, you know, I'm like, "Mm, I'm not so sure about that. But I also love how you spend so much time editing with your agent. And for our listeners out there, you know, it's so tempting to just go with the first agent who offers you representation. But working with an agent who is good editorially, they are worth their weight in gold. Like to have an agent who cannot help you editorially is extremely, extremely frustrating if that is what you want. So can we speak about, did that inform your choice of who you wanted to work with? Yes, absolutely. You know, I had never written fiction before. And while I had read craft books and had gone through a self-edit and worked with beta readers, I felt like there was still so much I had to learn. And so I was absolutely looking for an editorially oriented agent. Similarly, when we sold it to William Morrow. I loved working with my editor and I felt like I kind of got a crash course mini MFA in working with them. I'll also say to what you just said, you know, every time I hear on this podcast, the remember it only takes one, it's absolutely true. And also you owe it to yourself. If you are, if your spidey sense is saying that the first one is not the one, to invest in yourself and find the person who will be that one. Because I think that I had the lucky situation of having multiple offers of representation and eventually multiple offers from publishers. And so having that opportunity to hear what different people would do with the book, what they see working and not, I know that it's a lucky thing and that, you know, I, I I know more than anybody else how blessed I feel about all of this, but I do feel like being able to work with somebody who pushed me, who challenged me, made the book so much better and made me such a better writer as well. Yeah. And you know what? It just takes one yes, but it's my experience that after that one yes, there will be other yeses. So you don't need to just jump at that one yes and be like, you know, this is the only yes. And also, I love that you were prepared to work with someone whose editorial notes you really enjoyed. Because I've also spoken to writers who've been in this situation and they've ended up going with the editor who said, there's very little that I would edit. And there were other editors who were like, well, I would change this and I would change this. And the authors were like, well, I'd rather go with the editor who doesn't want to change anything. And I don't know that that's always the best route. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I think everybody has to choose what's right for them. But I think for me, there was no question that just as a person, I'm somebody who's always hungry to learn and to grow. And I will say that Sometimes when I was working with beta readers, because I worked with a lot of beta readers, which I loved, I could get quite confused about how do I know when it's done? Which advice should I take? But once I was working with my agent and then with my editor, 
I knew that these were people who were also financially invested in the success of this book, and they were not going to send me down a rabbit hole just for interest or something like that. Now, I will say, there are definitely parts of this book that I rewrote many different ways before getting it right, but those were rabbit holes that had to be explored to kind of figure out where the book story could go and how it could be as strong as possible. A hundred percent. Nothing's ever wasted. It's all a part of the process. So now, Nina, I want to ask, could you please read us the query letter that landed you, you know, these huge interest yeah. upfront and agents who, who all wanted to, to represent you? Can we hear that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Dear agent, that would be somebody's name. Nothing brings a family together like a murder next door. Lana Rubicon, 62, a hard-charging L.A. businesswoman, is stuck in her daughter Meg's dumpy house by a river, counting otters and hoping boredom won't kill her before the cancer does. Then, Lana's teen granddaughter Jack paddles into a dead naturalist floating in the river. A neighboring rancher, a patient of Meg's, dies the next day. Jack becomes a suspect. Meg is a mother on edge. Meg wants Lana to stay in bed, but Lana has bigger ambitions. To pull on her wig, find the true murderer, protect her family, and prove she still has power. Lana uses her big city chutzpah to confront suave environmentalists, skirt-chasing kayakers, illegal pot growers, and high society matrons. With Jack's help, and despite Meg's warnings, Lana uncovers a web of lies and violent feuds over who owns land, how it's used, and how many acres are worth killing for. The Life Jacket, different title, 85,000 words, is a mystery that blends the humor of the Thursday Murder Club, the small-town atmosphere of Louise Penny's Three Pines, and the female family dynamics of the Gilmore Girls. This debut novel is a standalone with series potential. I'm a former museum director and the author of two self-published nonfiction books, The Participatory Museum and The Art of Relevance, each of which has sold over 20,000 copies. I've given two TEDx talks, keynoted over 300 conferences, and have 25,000 followers on Twitter. I've written mixed-media mystery games on contract for CSI New York and the International Spy Museum. When not writing, I love to cook, hike, and paddleboard in the Monterey Bay. Thank you for your consideration, Nina Sign. And just a couple of things I would note about this. One that I think is cool is that first line, nothing brings a family together like a murder next door, is now literally on the jacket. It is, you know, the line that they used as a tagline. So nothing is wasted from your query letter. And also you may have noticed this was not because I was just reading a generic version. I actually didn't personalize, which I know is controversial, but I decided that if an agent, if I was doing my research and I was reaching out to agents for whom a murder mystery with family drama or women's fiction elements was going to be a fit, that they would identify that I had, you know, that that was the work I needed to do. And when I tried personalizing, A, it took a ton of time, and B, I felt a little bit silly or presumptuous to say, because you like X, you might like my... I, I, uh, anyway, that's just one take, and it certainly saved me a lot of time once I realized there was no difference in the number of requests I was getting, at least, with or without personalization. I love that observation because, you know, we have said on the podcast, if you are, are able to do a personalization, it is nice. It is nice for the agent to go, oh, you listened to my podcast or you heard me speak at this conference or whatever. But we have said it is absolutely not necessary. Just spell the damn agent's name right, please. That's all we say. Spell the agent's name right and get their, you know, designation right, whether it's Mr., Ms. or, or Dr. or whatever. Just get that right. But you absolutely don't need it because the query letter is always, always, always going to speak for itself. Now, I have a few questions here, Nina. One that I find very interesting is that, so 
for our listeners, throughout the novel, we have our three main protagonists, and Nina writes them all in the third person, and we jump backwards and forwards between them in very short chapters, which I freaking love. I love short chapters. So we've got Beth, who's the daughter. We've got Lana, who's the mother who has the cancer. And then we have Tiny or Jack, who is Beth's daughter and Lana's granddaughter. And in the query letter, you really center Lana. She's very much centered and the other two sound more peripheral. But if you look at the book itself, you know, they all get sort of equal POV time, mostly equal POV time on the page. So can you speak a bit about that choice to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you may have noticed also that that Beth got a new name from when this query letter was written. Yes. So when I queried this, I really saw it as Lana's book and I wrote it in third person POV pretty close to Lana and then a little mushy omniscient. And then when I worked with my agent, we tightened that up. But then it wasn't until I worked with my editor at William Morrow where she really said, let's make this not just Lana's story. Let's really flesh out Beth and Jack as pretty much equal POV characters. And Part of that was is very practical that if you're writing an amateur sleuth story, an amateur sleuth cannot go everywhere and and find all the clues. And so having three characters really helped. But also, this is a family story and all three of these generations, you know, I would say that this book, as much as anything, is about three strong women negotiating and navigating very different ways to be strong and what it means to be strong at different ages. And to do that, I had to be more in the other folks' shoes. Also, Lana is is the star of the show, but she's quite an outrageous character. And I had beta readers saying to me, you know, I like reading about Lana, but I can't identify with her. And actually, Beth became more and more central as people said, this is the character I identify with. Although it's one of my favorite questions to ask readers now of which Rubicon woman are you? Because you never know, and it's not always based on generation. Do do you know who you are, Bianca? Oh, I am 100% Lana. I love Lana. Absolutely nice. loved, 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 loved Lana. But I can understand where that feedback came from, which is interesting to me. Another two questions. Why was the Beth character's name changed? Was that something mm. your agent suggested, your editor suggested? How did that come about? Yeah, neither. That was the, I'm usually a pretty practical person, but this was the only like, you know, alchemical element that happened, which was that character changed so much in personality over the drafts because, and and a lot of that was based on my own personal experience because as I was caring for my mom, I'm like you, I'm Alana, I was a CEO before this, you know, you heard my bio and I was learning but was very uncomfortable with my role as a caregiver. And I love my mom. I love her so much. But I respected people like Beth, you know, a single mom who's really giving and a nurse, but I didn't admire necessarily. And so as I was writing draft after draft, I learned to love Beth. And at some point, she'd gone through so many personality changes that I said to my editor, you know, I've got to, I got to change this name because I just, I, that person is not this person anymore. And, and yeah, and I need to, I need to move them to, to be someone new. Also, this is a Jewish family and neither Meg nor Beth are Jewish names, but there's just a slight difference in terms of what's likely to be happening in a Jewish family with names. Yeah. Two things that you said there that I really love. And one is, you know, I, I had to fly back to South Africa this summer when my mom was rushed to ICU. And I'm like, in terms of caregiving, I am good in terms of 
where is the specialist? I'd like to speak to the specialist. I'd like answers. I'm good in advocating for my mother and all of those things. And then kind of telling her to take her blood pressure and take her oxygen and put on her compression socks. But I'm not good at like the other parts of, you know, nursing and caregiving. Those parts kind of freak me out and I'm grossed out very easily about things. So there's different ways to caretake people and to be a caregiver. And I love that, you know, like, the, the Lana personality would be the one way, but the Beth personality would, would very much be the other way. And what you just said now reminded me of something Terry McMillan said years ago in an interview. She said she starts writing characters who she doesn't really like or understand. And her whole purpose is that by the end of the book, she loves them and she understands them. And it feels like you went through that with Beth. I think that's right. And, and that's beautiful. And and I really identify with what you're saying about your mom, Bianca. And, you know, in a lot of ways, writing this book was my love letter to my mom. And it was a way I could bring my type A, like I need to produce something into caregiving in a very different way. I'll also say that my mom and I spent weeks chatting idly about these characters and about this book before I ever started writing. And at the time, I actually felt quite embarrassed by this, that we'd be sitting in hospital waiting rooms or in her bed and we'd be like, oh, what if, you know, because it, it was this what if based on real life. What if my tough Jewish L.A. mother was forced to move up into the woods where I live, you know, and we were just, you know, sit there and we just spitball, what kind of character would this be? And what if this and da, 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 da. And at first I felt quite embarrassed because I felt like, how can I say I'm writing something if I haven't written anything? But actually getting to know those characters together before I wrote made it so much easier when I went to the page, especially when writing dialogue. And there's a lot of scenes that are really about all three of these women and their relationships with each other. And that was was so enriched by all that time I spent with my mom just getting to know these characters just in an idle way. Yeah, their dynamic was incredible. The, the the interplay between the characters was incredible. The dialogue was incredible. But just speaking to what you've just said, the planning phase, the daydreaming the phase, the hypothesizing phase, the what if this happens, what if this happened phase, that is writing, people. We, we tend to smack ourselves over the head and be like, well, unless I've got pen to page or unless I'm frantically typing, I'm not actually working. And I find I do my best work in those spaces when my fingers are not on the keyboard, when I and going, okay, how about this? What about if this happens, etc. And how wonderful that you got to talk this through with someone because when I'm writing, I don't talk to anybody about my characters or whatever. I don't know why I'm so cagey about it because maybe I don't want other people to influence it, but sometimes that's a good thing. But I feel like that was an enormous blessing. Did, did you and your mom plot a lot of it out while you were talking or was it just like the scenario? What happens if it's this kind of scenario? Yeah, we didn't do a lot of plotting together. I ended up really taking an approach where I like to, as somebody on your podcast once talked about this idea of tent poles, you know, and one of the reasons I chose to write a murder mystery, first of all, we both love them. But secondly, it felt less daunting than writing general fiction. Every time I hear a query on this podcast for somebody who's just invented a story out of whole cloth, I'm so impressed because for me, it was very comforting to say, okay, I know with a murder mystery, we're going to have a dead body near the beginning. There has to be a reason to take on the case. There have to be suspects. You have to have a reveal at the end. You know, that really calmed me. So I started just with that. And then as I wrote scenes, I started going back and outlining more and more. And I would say my mom was always my research buddy, you know, my first reader of everything. And I always say she was both the best 
goddamn worst first reader because her feedback was never substantive, right? It was like, mm, I don't think that jacket should be purple. I think it should be blue, you know? But, um, <laughs> but the most important thing she said to me every day was, what happens next? Keep going. Can't wait to read more. And I think to what you just said too, Bianca, about the dreaming is part of writing. I always heard that before. Like when I hear you say that, I think, yeah, but Bianca's a real writer. You know, she's written books, so she gets to do that. And I would say one of the biggest things that I learned is that you get to do that even if this is the first book that you are writing. And and then also spend time just writing. You know, you can do both at the same time, but don't discount or or don't do what I did, which was think it's silly or embarrassing to be dreaming and scheming about the book out loud if that is helping you get to writing it down 100 percent, and everyone's process is different and everybody every author that we all love now who've got multiple books out wrote their first book and i'm telling you they were doing the daydreaming they were doing the plotting and scheming they were doing the staring into space for six hours at a time where their family was like are they really writing a book it doesn't look like they're writing a book you know so that is all all part of the process so nina i, I kind of want to ask you if there's going to be a film in the works i don't know if you can talk about that the book has been optioned. I can't say yet by whom, but I think that will probably be shared soon. And, you know, who knows what will happen. But certainly, I'm assuming you asked this partly because the book itself, you know, a bunch of people said, oh, it's really cinematic. And it was really fun to write something. I just talked to somebody the other day. And one of the most fun things about putting out a book is friends texting you lines that they like, friends you haven't seen in a really long time. And just yesterday, somebody texted me who lives pretty far away and said, you know, I can just see everything. Thing. And that made me feel really good. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly cinematic. And I think it'll make a wonderful series, not just like a once-off, like an ongoing series. So I'm putting it out there into the universe. Universe, do with it what you will. The universe has a way, though. It makes me laugh when you said earlier how you get this incredible news that there's lots of interest in your book. And then the universe is like, here, have some COVID, man, just so that we can <laughs> really balance the shit out for you so that, you know, you don't get a big head about things. And also, while everyone wants to speak to you, I'm going to give you zero reception just to add to yeah. that level of stress. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I felt very lucky that the zero, or I guess I had a tiny bit of phone reception, but no Wi-Fi. And so I was like, no video meetings. I'm doing no video meetings with these editors. And thank goodness, because at least on the phone, I could pretend to sound coherent. <laughs> oh, my word. I absolutely love it. Nina, thank you so much for chatting with us. For our listeners, we are linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. You can support an independent bookstore, the podcast at the same time, and Nina as well. Get the book. It is just such a wonderful, wonderful read. It's got a lot of heart, keeps you guessing, lots of twists and turns. Really a genre straddler for those of you who are straddling genres, and I really think you'll enjoy it. Nina, we look forward to having you back for the next one. I would love that. Thank you. And thank you to everybody in the Tisnatya universe. I've had the gift of listening to you and meeting so many other listeners. And just this is a, a peak moment to get to have this conversation with you today. Thank you, Nina. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. 
Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code pod 15 for the month of April at checkout. That's pod P O D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone. This is CC. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Welcome everyone to a very special Q&A session of our podcast. Let's listen to our first question. Hello, I'm about to start querying and I have a protocol question. I've met with a couple agents at conferences, so I'm actually gonna start my process with three full requests. Should I note that in my query to only the people who've requested or in every cold query I send out? I don't want to come out of the gate too strong, but I know some agents want to know if others are reading. Thanks so much for all that you do. You guys are the best. All right, Carly, will you answer that for us? All right. So this is an interesting one. I mean, to be honest, if I was to get a query, and I do get these queries, if I was to get a query that said, I already, you know, something to the effect of at the bottom, like I have three full, you know, requests out. So there's a couple of things. Number one, it makes me feel like I wasn't your number one choice. I know that I'm not a, everyone's number one choice. I completely understand that. But the point that you're trying to make isn't that, oh, you're, you're into your second round or something like that. Or there's just, there is some strategy that can be read into it. And the other thing is it does make me potentially feel like I'm behind the eight ball. So if you are trying to make me feel unpopular and trying to make me feel behind, that's probably what's going to happen. I mean, Obviously, I think the best way to follow up is an offer. So I don't think you have to let me know that you have people reading the fulls. Again, I know you're querying widely. I know other agents have other things going on. So I wouldn't make an agent feel slightly unpopular and a little bit behind. Thank you, Carly. All right, next question, and I'll answer this one. Hi, my name is Allison, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for querying quote-unquote dead genres like dystopias, especially in the young adult context. Thank you. Hi, Allison. Hmm. Okay, dead genres. 
My advice is to not listen to the people who say they're dead. Oftentimes, what people really mean is that the category has seen a decline. But guess what? All categories experience ups and downs at certain point. It doesn't mean the genre is dead. Dystopian fiction certainly isn't dead. So stay strong. Like stay in your path. You're all good. All right. Next question. Hey Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I am calling to ask your thoughts on setting a novel in the 1980s. I was just at a writer's conference where a speaker declared that books set between 1973 and 2000, very specific, were a literary no man's land, neither historical nor contemporary, and that literary agents would kind of take a pass because where do you place that kind of book on the shelves? So my novel deals with women's art and women's galleries in the 1980s in New York. It was kind of an exciting time. So that particular time frame is germane to my overall plot. And I just wanted to hear your perspective on, um, on that time frame. Thanks very much. Oh, gosh, you know how much I love talking about what is historical and what is not historical. That is so interesting that that agent was so specific about that kind of dead zone in terms of the no man's land. Very interesting. So number one, I love the idea of your book. And when I say love, I mean like capital L love. Women in the art world in the 80s, like absolutely sign me up. I'm very, very interested in that. Not too long ago, I read a memoir about one of Basquiat's partners in the 80s, you know, in the art world. And so I just, I find that completely, completely fascinating. So first of all, send that to me. Second of all, I am not scared of that time period, especially the one that you just described, because it is so specific to the world. I think you understand that. The way that you frame the question tells me that you know the answer, which is you're fine. One thing I will say, which does scare me a little bit, is a novel set in the 2000s without a hook that is specific to the 2000s. For me, the smartest book set in the 2000s is Sweet Bitter. It was set in 2006. It is just of its time. It works super well. I don't read too many books that nail it like that. But if you want to write in this time period in the 2000s, definitely read Sweet Bitter. There's mentions of certain songs and there's just such an atmosphere to it that I really think encapsulates that time period. So you know, as with publishing, everybody can break the rules. There are no rules, but there are rules and you got to do it this way, but not that way. And, you know, if you want to break the rules and you got to know the rules, you know, these are the things we are always saying, but trust your gut, know your intuition, just know that if you wrote a really great book and you know that you've done everything in your power to make sure that the setting and the plot and everything kind of match in terms of atmosphere and ambiance, then you know, you've done your job. I also want to read this, just saying. It sounds absolutely amazing. Maybe this will be a Shark Tank situation. Okay, next question. We never have a Shark Tank in the Q&A. first time. First time. All right, we'll send it to <laughs> yes. both of us. Send it to both of us and we'll both read it. Okay, next question. Hello, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. I am a debut nonfiction writer and have a question about querying. I'm working on a hidden figure story of an expert in my field and despite taking an extensive book proposal masterclass, having an acquaintance who is a creative nonfiction writing professor review my book proposal, being an expert in my field and having a moderate platform, I am still coming up empty handed when querying. I have mostly received form rejections and am becoming increasingly despondent. My questions are number one, what am I missing? And number two, is it possible that I need to complete my manuscript as a debut author to show that I can actually complete this work? 
Thank you for all you do for us and all the time, energy, effort, and money you spend educating. Okay, what are you missing? Hmm, I don't know. It's hard for me to answer this because I haven't reviewed your proposal or even your query. I don't even know the field, right? Like you mentioned, you're an expert in your field. I don't know what field that is. So it could be so many things. If I had to guess, and I mean that very literally, I am guessing, I'd say it's your platform. Moderate might not cut it. Maybe the field you're looking to break into is super competitive because after all, isn't so much of publishing super competitive, but it could be other things too. And to help you self-diagnose, I'll just go through a few of the common reasons why I usually pass on a nonfiction query besides platform. So one, the hook might not be super clear. I get the topic, I get the subject, but I don't get the hook. I don't understand what's original, what's paradigm shifting about your book. Like that's just not there. It might also be that the comps aren't super exciting to me. I don't think that the book will break out based on the comps, or maybe the comps are actually great, but they don't fit your book. Because it could also be a situation of, you know, the comps that you're mentioning aren't applicable to your story, and I don't see that, so it doesn't sound realistic. Another reason might be because it's too niche. Sometimes, again, I don't think something's going to break out, and so it's just not worth it. Another reason is... Because the subject matter might lend itself better to a podcast or an article or something else. Justifying that something needs to be a book, an expensive, introspective, very unique type of way to get your content is hard. And there's so many things that we could do right now to get a message across. So that might be it. Another reason could be that the writing is reading is too serious, too academic, not seductive enough. We're always talking about how storytelling is seduction and creative nonfiction really does have to really grab the reader's attention. So anyway, it could be so many reasons, including ones I'm not mentioning. And to answer your second question, is it possible that you need to complete your full manuscript? I don't think so. Nonfiction is sold on proposal. This is common. If you were telling me that you were writing a memoir, my, my answer might be different. But given that it's not memoir, I really don't think that's the issue. It's, it's, it's tough. It's tough out there. Okay, next question. Hi, this is George. I have a question that's intended to be genuine, not provocative. I've noticed that most literary agents are women. On Query Tracker, it's like three to one. And it seems that most people writing fiction are women. And of course, we know that the vast majority of readers are women. That's all awesome. But here's my question. Do you believe a bias exists against female writers today? And I guess as a follow-up, if you don't think there's a bias, why the continued emphasis on women-centric writing organizations and women-only writing contests and agents or publishers who specifically seek women writers? I can't find anything similar for men. Your thoughts as someone part of the industry? Thank you. Oh, this is an interesting question. Okay, George, you obviously know that you're sending this in to a woman and, you know, you're ready for my opinion on this and that's fine. So here's what I think. Yes, there are a lot of books published by women, but the quote unquote establishment has still decided through the patriarchy that more awards are going to men, right? These awards lists and these like, what is quote unquote serious nonfiction, like all this type of stuff, right? This is still going 
to men. And so I know you're, you're asking specifically about fiction, but I think that this is what I think is interesting, right? So the issue is, why are there so many women being published and yet they aren't winning as many awards? Like to me, that's the question that I'm asking myself and I encourage everybody to ask themselves, especially male listeners. And so I went digging for some research because people, you know, might be listening to this and saying like, sure, Carly, you're just making this up. So I found a study for y'all. So for example, there was this University of Pennsylvania study done by a student there. And she went through the three major awards, the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize, and the National Books Critics Circle Award between 1990 and 2016. In those 27 years, men won 60% of the three awards. But we know that more women than men are published. So to me, again, this is the thing that makes me ask the question. So if more women are being published, but more men are winning awards, to me, that is why we are seeing more organizations geared towards women and more of this emphasis towards women creating a place at the table at the establishment that I was mentioning at the beginning. So those are the things that I would be thinking about. Those would be the questions that I would be asking myself. And those are the questions that I ask myself. So that's kind of my thinking there. All right. Next question. Hi, Carly and Cece. Thank you for all the advice you give on the podcast. My question is, what is a good request rate for a query in 2023? I've sent out 10 queries and received several rejections, some form, but others telling me things they liked about my query package and just saying it was too similar to another client. I also received one partial request that, again, ended in the agent giving me some compliments but said they didn't love the characters as much as they'd hoped. Is this a good sign to get one partial request out of 10 queries? Should I query more or go get a professional editor? Thanks for any advice you can provide. Okay, so first of all, one out of 10 is great. Congratulations. Talking numbers is really tough because querying has so many variables. So I don't really have a number to tell you. I don't really have a, oh, you should aim for X. There are just way too many variables. In my opinion, a good request rate for all the queries you've ever sent is one because it only takes one yes, right? Do you want more? Of course, I want more for you too. But I don't think that you should be focused on numbers. I think you should be focused on how many agents are you targeting and what feedback, if any, are you getting from them? Once you do get a full request, are you getting anything out of that in terms of feedback or anything like that? Are you getting any R&Rs? So there's just way too many variables to give you a number, unfortunately. Okay, next question. Hi, I have a question related to like historical events. I'm writing a novel that takes place in 2008, 2009, when Obama was president during the Great Recession in DC, but my protagonist works for an LGBTQ advocacy organization and is working on a piece of legislation that in real life was proposed in 2006, 2007, when Bush was president. However, I'm changing it so it occurred in 2008, 2009 when my book takes place. Is this a bad idea because I'm changing some of parts of history timeline but not all? Or should I have everything just start in 2006, 2007 with Bush in power before the Great Recession? Any advice you have would be super helpful. Thanks so much. Oh, this is a very interesting one. So to me, it depends on how central it is to your story. It's totally okay to change details if two things are true. One, the change will not compromise the heart of your story. So for example, in the Knicks, Circle has dorm rooms. And in real life, Circle, Circle, by the way, is the Chicago Circle campus at the University of Illinois, didn't have dorm rooms until a little later. So 
It doesn't change the heart of the story, though. The author needed Circle to have dorm rooms, so he added that to the story. And there's an author's note at the end of the Nix explaining his very intentional choice. And then number two, the change is not something that a lot of people would know, and therefore they wouldn't find it super weird. Imagine, for example, writing that Obama was president during World War II. Like too many people would go, that makes no sense. The exception to this, of course, is if you're writing speculative fiction in which the change is what makes the world different. An example would be The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. So yeah, that's what I think. Thank you for asking. Okay, next question. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for all that you do. I had a question about my first novel. I pitched it to um, about 100 agents, have not had success, but I did submit it to the soon-to-be-famous library contest in Illinois, and I won. So the prize is an edit and a book cover. The contest is sort of designed for you to self-publish. I'm really not interested in self-publishing, and I really do have my heart set on traditional publishing. I'm already about three-quarters through my second manuscript, which I'll be pitching to agents. But I would love to take advantage of this contest win and share it with my family and friends. My question is, if I take the cover and the edited version and just pay for copies myself and just distribute them to family and friends, does that have any impact on a future debut? I know that if you self-publish, you're really looking for big numbers in order to ever convert to traditional publishing. So any thoughts you have here would be super appreciated. Thank you. All right. So, well, congratulations on number one, submitting to 100 agents. I'm going to give you props for that. Loud clap. There you go. You know, a lot of people get concerned like, oh, 10 agents have read my book or 20 agents have read my book. Nobody wants it. I am obsessed with the idea that you pitched 100 agents. Well done. I You just did your due diligence. So I want to give you claps for that. Number two, and obviously for winning this award, you know, it's just great to see your success reflected from an organization. So well done. Now onto your question. So It isn't self-publishing technically until you assign an ISBN. So therefore, it isn't kind of damaging, quote unquote, damaging to your career unless you assign it an ISBN and therefore sales numbers are being tracked, you know, potentially. And that's the type of thing that could be potentially damaging. I think if you don't assign it an ISBN, you just like put it together. To me, it's like it's not a book, it's a pamphlet. You know what I mean? So that's my personal feeling on that. Again, there could be lots of other people that feel differently. So yeah, I don't know. I, I If you just want to print, you know, 50 copies or whatever and share them with friends, it's as I said, it's to me, it's that's a pamphlet. That's not really self-publishing in a way that can that can hurt any kind of career potential. Okay, last question. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I have a question. I'm finishing my manuscript and getting ready to query and have seen novel excerpt or chapter contests from reputable organizations like the Master's Review. The winning selections of these contests are published online. Would winning something like that be helpful in querying or could it potentially be harmful because a portion of the book would then be published? Thank you. Okay, interesting. So for me, as long as we're talking about reputable contests, it won't harm you. Like, don't worry about the harm because we're talking about short excerpts. Will it help you in your querying journey? So I always say that these things are nice cherries on top. It's never something that will lead to an auto request for me because for me, what makes me request automatically um, is I love your writing, right? Like I'm going to read your pages and I'm like, yes, oh my gosh, give me, give me, give me more. Um, 
Do I love the hook? Like, am I compelled in the story? There's just way too many variables about the story itself. But yes, absolutely. I, I love seeing that people are serious about their writing and that they've won contests or taken creative writing classes or done so many more things. So absolutely add that if you're comfortable adding, of course, and congratulations. All right, so that's it for today. If you want to submit us a question, go to our website. There is a specific place where you can click on submit a question and send us more of your questions so Carly and I can answer them. Thank you everyone for listening. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.